morning. Welcome those who join us via streaming this morning as well. It's good to have you. Prayerfully, our audio issues are all taken care of. I think they are. I don't want you to be alarmed this morning as you're sitting here noticing that there are considerably less people than there were last time. That's somewhat strategic, FYI. We have asked some people to transfer into the earlier services because we are now beginning the process of trying to manage attendance. In other words, a lot of people are coming back to worship. Praise the Lord. Yeah, and so that, that's what we're up to right now is trying to figure out how we can keep everybody together and minimize the use of overflow spaces. We can use them, we will use them, but we'd obviously much rather be together. And so that's, that's what we'll be working on in the next few weeks at least. You'll be hearing from us. If we need something from you, we'll be, we'll be hollering. But um, we had a lot of, have had a lot of folks in worship already this morning and are tickled to have you here this morning as well. Well, last week, I guess I struck a nerve. Um, we were talking about the fear of man, and I got a decent amount of feedback on that. And you know, it's not really a surprise that, that talking about the fear of man is going to strike a nerve, because it's a very common affliction among us, even as Christians. We want to think that we're past it or we beyond it, but it's just not true. We still fight for uh, people's approval and being okay and finding our identity and in other people, and we, we can struggle with that for a time. And I know that to, to confront that the way we did in Proverbs 29, verse 25, could be a little bit unsettling. I think some people felt a little bit exposed last week, but it, it may be picked on in a good way, in that the Holy Spirit is present to convict. And again, that's unsettling, that can make us ill at ease. We are much better, aren't we, at putting up a veneer or pretending that things are a certain way than we are at being open and vulnerable to the truth. But let me tell you, as unsettling as that can be for people, and I get it because I'm one of those people, you do know the text has to beat me up before it ever gets to beat anybody else up, right? You do know that we, that's the process of working through these. So I can completely relate with my own uh, perfectionist tendencies. But the, 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 the thing that excites me is that I know when that happens that God is at work. And I know that he's at work in you, helping you to change. And the thing about our God is that he's not just interested in your change. He's not a disinterested observer in the change that he wants to see. He's an active participant. He is totally invested in your change. Philippians tells us that the one who began a good work in you will complete it. So God is at work. And here's something that maybe you wouldn't think about necessarily from an individual's perspective, but as a pastor is very exciting. And that's this. If God is changing you, then God is changing us. Because while we can take that in Philippians as a personal promise, that he who began the good work will complete it, we ought to remember that it was written to a church. And so if God is strengthening you, then he's strengthening us. And if God is conforming you more to Jesus, then he's conforming us more to Jesus. In other words, God is active right here on the corner of Hancock and Pine Streets in our lives to make us the people that he wants us to be to carry off the mission that he is entrusting to us. So that, to me, as unsettling as it might be, is really good news. I came across this poem I want to read to you. I don't know who wrote it. Uh, it's, it's attributed to Anonymous, of course. 
Uh, and it's a rather older poem, so when I use the word man here, don't take it as gender specific, but take it as representative of all humanity. Sort of fits kind of what we're going through in, these next, in this last sermon and this one. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and which every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God knows what he's doing. God knows what he's about. And guess what? God knows what you're about. And you are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Father, we thank you for the gift of the church. We thank you for the gracious way that you move in our lives. We thank you that you are so patient and loving and kind in us and with us. And Lord, how you shape us and mold us, we give you praise. We gather now to quiet our hearts and hear your voice because your voice is the most important voice in this room. And your will is what we desire. So we orient our hearts and our minds to you, Lord, as we declare your worth. Speak to us. Help us to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking up where we left off, Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25, in the second half of that verse. Last week, in the first half of the proverb, we read that the fear of man lays a snare, and we learned that a snare is a trap. That is indeed a trap to be overly concerned with what people think of us, how people view us, concerned about what they might do to us. And I have to say overly concerned because I don't want anyone coming away with the impression that to be free of the fear of man, we must never care what others think or we, we must never care how we look to others or never be concerned about what they are capable of inflicting on us. That is not accurate. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us about times when we should be concerned with these very things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes, For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Regarding the qualifications of elders, Paul wrote to Timothy, Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. Paul told the Thessalonian Christians that they should aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders. Romans 12.10 teaches that we are to put others before ourselves in honor. And Romans 15.2 teaches, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You and I cannot follow any of those commands without giving thought to what others are wanting from us or needing from us or even how they view us. In other words, we have to be mindful of others in order to be faithful to God. We have to be mindful of others in order to be faithful to God. But then there's this thing that sin does, right? Sin has a way of taking something that's right and good and distorting it just enough so that it's no longer good. In fact, it could even be harmful. 
And that's what happens when our concern or consideration for others turns into the fear of man. The fear of man doesn't mean that we are not to be considerate of the thoughts and feelings of other people, how they assess us. It is that we are not to be overly concerned with those things, right? And that's what happens when we start to orient our lives around people's perceptions, when we allow them to be a source, when we allow people to be a source of our, our, our identity, of our value, of our worth, when people and what they say or what they might think becomes the motivation for our words or our deeds or become the filter through which we pass all of our decision-making. That's the fear of man. That's what to avoid. Our text this morning, Proverbs 29, 25, invites us to think about where our ultimate confidence lies, where our trust lies. And if we put our trust in other people, the Bible says that's a trap. A trap is dangerous, right? Everybody would agree with that. It does not end well for the animal that's caught in the trap. And, and, and a trap is to be avoided. And I think that's what Solomon has in mind here. He's writing, remember, he's writing to his sons. And some of you are parents, and so you understand. You want to point out to your children Look out for this. Look out for that. This is not a way that you want to go. So we get that. That's what Solomon, I think, is saying. Look, son, here's the trap. But it isn't just Solomon writing to his son. It's our Heavenly Father writing to us, isn't it? This, this is in the Bible because our Heavenly Father, speaking to us, his children, wants us to see this trap as well and avoid it. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. Have you noticed as you've been reading through Proverbs that some of these you're like, what on earth does that mean? Because we're not out spreading nets for birds or anything like that, but it kind of makes sense that if an animal sees a trap that is being set for it, you're not as likely to catch that animal. Even a bird is smart enough to avoid a net if it sees it being spread for him. So the question is, are we smart enough to avoid the snare? of the fear of man because the Bible has laid it out. That's what it is and it's in front of us. Prayerfully we won't be caught up in it. So our text in the first part is saying watch out for this. It's a trap. It's a setup. Don't go there. And the next word we read is but. There's a little word and then and we know okay a contrast is going to be made here at this point. There's going to be a second part of this proverb and it's going, to, it's going to be different than the first. And again, as you've been reading through the book of Proverbs, you've probably come across many, many sentences like this. Contrasting ideas, contrasting observations. It's called antithetical parallelism. Try to say that three times fast. I don't even think I said it right the first time. The first part states a truth, which is then contrasted by a second truth. If you were to look, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 3, you'd see a whole slew of these. Uh, Proverbs 3.32, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but, the bless but he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Proverbs 3.34, toward the scorners he is scornful, but to the humble he gives favor. Proverbs 3.35, the wise is will inherit honor, but fools get disgraced. This right here, just flying through those like I did, is actually a reminder of why we need to read these things so slowly. Because they're loaded. They're full of wisdom, full of information. Do you ever stop of how, think about how the Lord is uh, thinking of you? Have, you? have you ever considered if you are that scorner or if you are a humble one who 
to whom the Lord will grant favor. There's a lot to think about, so we want to read these Proverbs slowly. Those ones that I just read to you, they contain two observations. They also encourage a choice. They typically, these types of Proverbs, contain a way uh, that is foolish and a way that is wise, a way that invites pain and a way that sets the stage for blessing. And obviously, we are encouraged to make the right choice. That's what Solomon wants for his son. That's what our father wants for us. And in this way, these little proverbs are, they parallel. They may be a microcosm, but they parallel the point of the whole book. Wisdom and folly are both vying for your attention. Wisdom and folly are both beckoning to you all the time. Will you choose the, the wise way? Or will you choose the foolish way? And God wants us, his desire for us is to choose the better way. That's the second half of Proverbs 29, 25. The fear of man lays a snare, watch out for that. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. If you want to avoid the snare, trust in the Lord, and then you will be safe. And that word translated safe is from a Hebrew word that means to be made lofty, inaccessible. Isn't that kind of what safety is, right? Nobody can harm me. Nobody can do anything to me. That's what we're aspiring to. That's what we want. The same word is used in Psalm 69, verse 29. But I am afflicted and in pain, but your salvation, O God, set me on high. In Proverbs 18:10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So which do you prefer, my friends, a trap on the ground or a fortress in the sky? Right? Something rooted in, in man, something earthly, some, a trap on the ground, or something grounded, not grounded, it's in heaven, preserved, eternal, strong, a place where you can be inaccessible, untouchable, so to speak. Which of those would you trust? Which is going to go further to preserve you? Which is going to do more to keep you? Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So when we read something like that, I would think we would naturally then say, okay, safe from what? Safe from what? Even if you've ever said to somebody, hey, you need to be saved, they, if they're right at all, they'll say, safe from what? We hope they do, because that's just kicking the door open for the gospel. Right? But uh, you'd, want to have a, you, you'd want that question to be asked of you, and we should ask the question of the text. Safe from what? Safe from her? Safe from being lied about? Safe from suffering at the hands of others? Safe from disappointing someone and having them be upset with us? Safe from ridicule because of our faith? No, it's none of those things. Safe from the snare of the fear of man. Safe from worrying about what anyone can do to you because your confidence is in God. And you know this about God. He's either going to protect you or he's going to deliver you or he's going to redeem every painful experience that he allows you to go through for your good and for his glory. And so you, Christian, can never lose. You just can't lose because God is good. That's what it means to trust in the Lord, to believe that. God is going to protect me. 
And if he doesn't protect me, then he'll deliver me. And if he doesn't deliver me, then he expects me to go through this because I need to. For me and for him, because he's good. And I can trust that. So I don't have to be afraid of the circumstance. I don't have to be afraid of anything. The Apostle Paul demonstrated this safety in the Lord when he wrote to his friends in Galatia. The church there had begun in a good way. They had been preached the gospel of grace. They had embraced the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. They understood it, and, and they formed a church, but, but it wasn't that long before they started heading in a bad direction. And they started to espouse and believe, instead of a gospel of grace, a salvation by works. They sort of got hung up in what we might call legalism, justification by their own performance. It's an easy thing to do. It happens. Well, the Apostle Paul wants to write to them to set them straight and say, listen, you're abandoning the gospel of grace and you're signing up for this fear of man legalism and it's not going to work. Now, when Paul started to write that letter, do you think he had in mind that he wasn't going to make everybody happy? Do you think he understood that when he wrote that, he was going to incur some enemies, some resistance? And nonetheless, he wrote in Galatians 1.10, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? Listen to this. If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If I was still about that business of making everybody happy and saying what they wanted to hear me say and not offending anybody, I wouldn't even be a servant of Christ. Indeed, it is one of the great tragedies, isn't it, of living to please man, that it keeps us from living for Jesus. That's why it's such a sin. That's why it's such a problem. Charles Spurgeon preached about this. He preached on this very text, and I'm going to steal a big chunk of his sermon because it's great. He makes a poignant application here how this earthly fear of man sets the snare that has eternal consequences. Spurgeon says, again, the fear of man brings a snare in this respect. He keeps many persons from conversion. So he's talking about, about people that are afraid that, that won't make a decision for Christ, even though, though they know they ought to, even though they're convinced of it because they're worried about what other people are going to say or think. So they come up to the cusp of confusion, kind of that almost, you know, you've almost persuaded me, but then they, but then they back away. So this is who he's talking about and talking to, I think, because his next line is this. Perhaps there are some such persons now present. Let me see if I can pick them out. Can you imagine sitting under Charles Spurgeon's preaching and he says that? Let me see if I can pick them out, especially if you're one of those people. Be like, I'm out. Where's the restroom? I got to... He says this. You scarcely dare to go to the place where the gospel is preached in a way in which God blesses it, because if you were to go there and it were known, it would be a subject of jest in your family and would provoke remarks that you would not like. There are many who dare not to go to the house of God where God pours out the blessing. They are such cowards that they dare not come to listen to those who preach Christ's gospel with power. And others who do come and hear it are afraid to receive the truth to which they have listened again and again. The thought in such a person's mind is, what would father and mother say if I were converted? Oh, what a time I should have of it. What would my fellow workmen say? I should have to run the gauntlet of the whole lot if they once knew that I had become a Christian. Another says, I don't know how I should endure the persecution if I should receive 
that I should receive. My life would become intolerable if I were to become a child of God. And so they never come to Jesus because of fear of man, which bringeth a snare, keeps them still as the hopeless slaves of sin. But young man, do you mean to be damned just to please somebody else? Do you mean to fling away your immortal soul in order to escape the laughter of fools? Remember that they may laugh you into hell, but they cannot laugh you out again. Let not the fear of man be the ruin of your soul. If for the sake of pleasing men you choose to forfeit some small trifle, it doesn't much matter. But when it comes to the forfeiting of Christ, the forfeiting of your soul, the forfeiting of heaven, I appeal to your own conscience to say, if it is worth, worthwhile to be eternally ruined for the sake of pleasing men, whoever they may be. Is it not better that even father and mother and brother and sister and every friend you have in the world should be against you and that God should be yours than that you should have all these, things, all these as your friends and yet remain at enmity against the Most High? Is the fear of what people will say or think holding you back from giving your life to Jesus? Or from being obedient to the call that Jesus is placing on your life. You know this is what he wants you to do, but you're worried what people will say or think. So you don't do it? I hope not. I hope that's not true for you, but if it is, friend, I don't want you to lose hope. I just want you to get your fears in order. It's time to get your fears in order. You understand, right? The truth is this, that we have to fear God supremely because no human being controls our eternal destiny. Only God can make us eternally safe. And he promises that he will do that for those who fear him, but he equally promises that he will not do that for those who don't. Jesus cautions us in Matthew 10, 28. He says, don't fear those who kill, kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And Jesus is saying, don't fear people. Don't worry about what men can do. Fear God. And, and some of us, we don't like that. We think, well, I just don't, I don't want to have any fear. I don't, I don't want to fear anything. I want to live fearlessly. And I'm going to say, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because you, you understand that if you, if you aspire to live fearlessly, then you must have some sense in your mind that you are, have an ability to control all the variables. And that would make you God. And you're not God. The fact that we have the right fear keeps us in our creaturely place. The problem that we have all the time is that we're, that we're affirming the creature as the creator, and that's not true. So we're not God. So we don't want to live fearlessly as if we are controlling everything. We want to submit to the one who controls everything, and that means we are to fear him. That means we are to reverence him. And now all of a sudden, this should, this, the light should be coming on. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So a good goal for you and I as we march through this life and as we try to make the most of it is to have the right fear. It's to have our fears in order. It's not to have no fear, but to have the right fear and to have our fears in order. That is, if you and I are reverencing God the way God deserves to be reverenced, if we have that fear of the Lord in us, then we will not be anxious about what men can do to us. We will not. 
And then, because we are not anxious because of what people can do to us, we will be bold for Christ. And that's what he wants. And that's what he deserves, right? Because that's what makes us truly servants of Christ. Think about it. If people-pleasing is our default, we are afraid of people. What is the biblical prescription when we are afraid? Psalm 56.3 says, When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. So when we're afraid, we put our trust in God. When fear of disapproval leads to compromise, we are taking our refuge in the responses of others. What does the scripture say about the proper place to take our refuge? Psalm 118, verse 8, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. And so we see again, this issue comes up. Here is the issue. It is the issue of trust. And the fear of man is misplaced trust. Trusting in people, needing people to provide for us what God should and what truly God only can. And when we do that, it doesn't work. It won't work. It can't work. It's, it's what the Bible calls folly. And it's why the Bible continuously steers us away from it, because it's going to consistently end badly. I, I can just ask you, beloved, what is the result of all your worrying over what people think about you? What is the result of you compromising your Christian values so people will accept you? Or at least won't dislike you? What, what is the result of living in dread of what people can do to you? Does it make your life good? Does it bring joy? Does it bring peace? Does it bring rest? And of course the answer is no. No, it does not, and it can't. Those things are found only in the soul that is secure in God. Only in the one who has learned, or perhaps more um, accurately, the one who is learning to trust in God. It's not an easy thing to do, is it? Let's be honest. It's not always an easy thing to do. How do we trust in God? Well, let me give you... Let me give you two quick ideas, if I can remember them here toward the end of the third sermon. The first is to, is to acknowledge the futility of our attempts at trusting in man, that it can't deliver, that it always over-promises and under-delivers, that we can work so hard to appease people, but we just don't get the result that we want. So that's something to keep in mind. A motivation to change, right? So, so it's, it's, it can be as simple as this. I'm not espousing a complete pragmatism, but in this case, it's pretty simple. I'm doing something. It's not working. I need to do something else. But before I will ever do anything else, I have to confess what I'm doing isn't working, right? So that's one thing to think about in terms of jettisoning uh, the fear of man and, and becoming free. And the other, I think, is just a little bit more... Um, based in your experience of God? And this would be the question, have you found him to be trustworthy? And if you went back and you took an inventory of your life and your major decision points, even your failures where he showed up with forgiveness and received you to himself, has he been trustworthy? And I think... Don't we have to say yes at every turn? At every turn? I can't point to a 
place in my life where God wasn't trustworthy. And so that, that should help us, shouldn't it, to get a little bit better at reaching out in faith and saying, God, I'm going to trust you with this, and I want to trust you with this, because you don't disappoint. You always do what is right and good, and you have a perfect will, and you're sovereign. So think about how silly it is to live in the fear of man and how that just, has, just hasn't panned out the way that you hoped. And think about, on the other hand, how God is completely trustworthy. And see if that doesn't make a difference and help you get to the point where you're cultivating that supreme reverence for God that we talked about last week. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Matthew Henry is an 18th century theologian, commentator, and he says this. This is older English. You hang around here long enough, you know I'm going to like the older English. A holy confidence in God makes a man both great and easy. Just think about that. Great and easy. Right? Settled. Okay. Great and easy. And enables him to look with a gracious contempt. These are not two words you would normally put together. A gracious contempt upon the most formidable designs of hell and earth against him. That's what trust in God does. I can look at that with a gracious contempt. Like, that is not going to slow me down. And this is how he ends it. He says, if God be my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. If God be my salvation, I will trust and not be afraid. And normally we conclude our worship with a song, but this morning I just want to leave you with a few words from an old hymn for you to ponder. And hopefully the, the melody of that hymn will also come, come to mind as I, as I say these words. And I hope it will just kind of ring with you maybe through the, through the day or through the week. Yes, tis sweet to trust in Jesus. Just from sin and self to cease. And that's the problem, isn't it? Sin and self. So yes, trusting in him just from sin and self to cease. Just from Jesus simply taking life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him. How I've proved him o'er and o'er. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus. Oh, for grace to trust him more.